What's the worst thing you've ever done? I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. It's a terrible question. Just want to know if I have your attention yet. I had a click this morning. Something clicked in my heart, in my soul, in my brain. I was like, whoa, I get it. I was riding my bike to a coffee shop where Luke and I meet every Monday. Which coffee shop? I'm not telling because we already don't get enough done and we just don't want to make it a party. So on the way to the coffee shop, I saw this woman who was decked out and she had all these religious signs all over her car and my heart sank. And so Luke and I were meeting and we were just discussing a lot of things and this pastor came over and I just said to him, he's in another church, I said, oh man, I just had this experience, like I saw this car with this stuff, and my heart's saying, like, what's going on? And he like grabs my notebook and he just starts drawing all this stuff on it. And he's like, well, because there's a spirit of religion in Missouri. And I was like, what? You're going to have to explain this one out to me a little bit. He said, if you think about, there's two forces that Jesus pushes back against, and they both get him killed. One, Jesus pushes back on a spirit of politics. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly pushing back on Rome, Herod. He's pushing. There's another spirit Jesus pushes against, though. This is just scribbles. This is nothing. Some of you I know are like trying to write it down. This is like nonsense. I just I want to rescue you from like a deep dive into my brain. The other thing that Jesus is trying to push back against is a spirit of religion. You think about how many times Jesus gets into conflict with religious leaders. Some of you will be like, wait, aren't I at church? Like, why are we knocking religion? What's happening here? Religion gives a message that says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. That's the heart of religion. And Jesus is constantly pushing back on this message, so much so it gets him killed. And so this pastor is drawing, he draws a, uh, those two like, rivers, and he's like, there's, on one side it's the spirit of politics, on the other side it's the spirit of religion. He says, how do you know if you're operating in the spirit of religion? He draws a tree. And he says, if you can imagine the spirit of religion as a tree, the branches are all offended. I'm offended. I didn't like that. Did you see what they were wearing? Did you hear the words they were saying? Offended, offended. And he said, that's the branches. The roots of this tree, though, the roots that we're connected to are things like fear, manipulation, and control. Fear, manipulation, and control. We're coming to a portion of John's gospel where John is recording for us how Jesus is starting to butt up against the spirit of religion. In the passage we're about to read today, it says that Jesus was growing in popularity and the religious leaders didn't like that. Offended. Why? Because the root of that is fear, manipulation, and control. Think about the context of John's gospel. Jesus has gone into the temple and says, hey, we're missing it. This doesn't honor God. Then what happens? John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus heard that the Pharisees had learned that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. He's growing in popularity, and they don't like it. Religion. This massive theme in all four of Jesus' spiritual biographies, that Jesus is pushing back on religion. A hero of mine uh, just passed away a couple weeks ago, Pastor Timothy Keller. 
And before he died, he wrote this, I don't want to say manifesto because that has like negative connotations, but it was sort of a, a roadmap for how Christianity can navigate secularism. And he said, if Christianity is going to be helpful, if it's going to present any hope for the world, and if we're going to engage and love our secular neighbors, we must differentiate between religion and grace. Jesus pushed back on religion. And there is a spirit of religion in mid-Missouri. I, another pastor here of mine, he was a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I remember when I first moved here, he said, there's a spirit of oppression in Grand Rapids. And I was always like, oh, that's, oh that doesn't fit mid-Missouri. That's not really the case. What is it, though? It's not, it's not the same. What's in the air here is not the same thing that's in the air in Los Angeles. Some of you are like, that's smog. There's not the same spirit. It's not the same spirit that's in the Northeast. There's something going on here. And I think, and it clicked last week, it's a spirit of religion. It's a spirit of, I obey, therefore I am blessed. And I just need to be clear. That's not what we're doing here. It's not who we are. That's not the God of the Bible. See, religion says, if, if I obey, then I'm blessed. What does that look like? Hiding. Because no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you obey, it's a lot of effort, it's a lot of energy, you get tired. What happens when you get tired? You leak. You yell at your kids. Look at something you shouldn't have. Now what do you got to do? I'm still accepted, so I got to hide. The word for that is shame. See, religion produces shame, and shame isolates I can't let people know who I really am. The people in my life, if they saw who I really was, they'd push me away. And if God sees who I really am, mm-mm. John chapter 4 speaks a message that religious people need to hear. John chapter 4 is an invitation for religious people to take a deep breath. In John chapter 4, Jesus flips, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, on its head. And we actually get a different paradigm. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. In John chapter 4, Jesus leaves the religious capital and he heads out into a pagan wasteland. Samaria. That may be hard for us to feel the weight of that because our imaginations are shaped by, we hear of the good Samaritan. A good Samaritan, that's somebody who does something kind for someone. They go above and beyond. That was not the original audience's imagination when they heard the word Samaritan. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Samaritans had a common ancestry um, with their Jewish neighbors, but instead, in order to survive exile, they mixed both religiously with their pagan neighbors. And that created a ton of racial tension at the time. A ton. These people did not get along. And Jesus is being pushed out by the religious order. And where does he go? Samaria. Why does he go to Samaria? 
because he's making his way toward us. John's gospel is written much later. And the early church was famous for, it started in Jerusalem and Judea, went to Samaria, and then went to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said. The Jesus movement had exploded. Started in Jerusalem and Judea, goes to Samaria, goes to the ends of the earth. The religious leaders are, are rejecting Jesus. They're jealous. They're offended. I don't like this. So Jesus goes to Samaria. Why? Because he's coming after us. It's on the way. And he doesn't just go to the Samaritans. He finds a person wallowing in shame. Wallowing in shame. You think it's scary that you padded your resume and you don't want your bosses to find out who you really are? You think it's scary that, oh, people saw my internet search history. I couldn't show my face around here. Jesus steps into that space and says, I see and I love. And that's really hard for us to imagine because nobody treats us like that. He's flipping religion on its head. In 42 verses, Jesus changes the world. We're going to read these 42 verses. And I know what you're thinking. I can do that. That's really easy. It takes about three and a half minutes to read these 42 verses. And I always feel like when I read like narrative in the Bible out loud, I kind of like make it sound like a high school play. Like the woman at the well says, where are you going to get water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And then Jesus says, if you knew who it was who asked you. And it's like really boring. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to do that today. And I'm like, I'm super godly. I can handle it. It's hard, all right? There were a lot of super godly people in the first service I watched. They were like, oh, come on. Can we go through this? Can we get there? All right? So we're going to read 42 verses. But it's a conversation that changed everything. It's a conversation that flips religion on its head. It's a conversation that introduces us to a God who accepts us first. So if you would, please stand with me. We're going to read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. We ready? Okay. There's two ready people. All right. If you have to, like, walk around, we can do it. If you've got to go get coffee, there's still coffee, right? All right. We're going to make it. All right, that's my commitment to you today. We're going to make it. Here we go. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. He was very popular. Now, Jesus is more popular. Uh-oh. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. This verse is very important, verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. It's technically not true. We're going to talk about that. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. We're going to get there, I promise. <laughs> when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples, they had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, y you're a Jew 
and, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you uh, have nothing to draw water with and the well's deep. Where are you going to give me this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty again and have to come here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You can tell it's awkward because she's turned the conversation to theology. Woman, and please don't hear that through like the lens of like 1980s Louisiana. It was a term of endearment in the first century. Love. Believe me. The time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet, the time is coming and now has come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And when He comes, He'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But nobody asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, that's an important detail, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for a harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. 
They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. We okay? I see that yawn. All right, let's pray and ask for his help. Jesus, we want to, we don't want to just get through the text to get through it. We want the text to get through to us. God, I pray that we would not be a people who can hear this amazing invitation and move on. God, help us to linger. Help us to be present. God, I pray that if there is a spirit of religion in this place, you'd push it out. It's not welcome here. God, we pray that grace would be the air we breathe. It'd be a, a, just what shapes us as a community. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. We did it. We made it. Woo! There's a lot happening in what we just read. Let me try to unpack it a little bit for you. Jesus... He's leaving Judea, so that's where like, the temple is. He's leaving, and he's headed to Galilee. But verse 4 gives us a very important detail about his travels. What does verse 4 tell us? Now he had to go through Samaria. That is not true. John, the gospel writer, says this. He had to. He did not have to. If he's trying to get from Judea to Galilee, there's another route around that most rabbis took. They would go around Samaria because of racial tensions. Why? I don't want to be anywhere near unclean people because I might become unclean. Well, what, is the, what does John tell us? Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had to go through it. He had, it, was, it was his mission. That's providence. There's geography, and then there's the guiding hand of God. God's like, no, we're going through Samaria. While Jesus is being rejected by the religious order, he goes to religious outsiders. He's moving toward people. People who are trying, who are living in fear, who are trying to manipulate and control. He does the exact thing they don't want him to do. Go to people who are unclean and treat them with dignity, honor, and respect. Why? Because if I'm religious, someone has to be irreligious. If I'm religious, there needs to be somebody that I'm more religious than. And you're, you may be thinking I'm picking on like literally religious people, but this is people on the right and on the left. Conservatives, progressives, people who are in church every Sunday, people who have never darkened the door of a church ever. The spirit of religion is that I get accepted by obeying. I can't let you see what's going on. I got to really outwork you. We need someone who's not working, who's the bad guy, who can stir us up, who can help us fundraise, who's out, who, oh, if we don't, we might become this. What does Jesus do? He goes to the this. Now, that'd be amazing. That'd be life-changing and awesome if that were it. But it's not it. You don't need to show your hands, but how many in here are familiar with the fine art called romantic comedies. Romantic comedies are a genre of film that have a formula. Two people meet, they don't like each other. One's obnoxious, one's career-driven. One person does something slimy to the other person. They hate each other. Uh-oh, then they start to like each other. It's cute. They're really liking each other. It's starting to work out. But the slimy thing that happened in Act 1 has now... It's come 
It's, you know, the, the check has been cashed. Oh no, they're not getting along. They hate each other. They're going to break up. But we go one place, and this is the dead giveaway. If you're watching a film and it's about to end and they're in this location, you can be quite confident you're watching a romantic comedy. They go to the airport. <laughs> Someone's about to fly away. Someone, without buying a ticket, made it through TSA. What a miracle. They make a last chance plea. They fall in love. And then some older person makes a funny comment. The credits roll. You're familiar with the art form, I see. In storytelling, we have these art forms that let us know things are going on. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are no different. In the Old Testament, when a barren woman has a baby, something big is about to happen. Likewise, in the Old Testament, when a man meets a woman at the well, something beautiful is about to happen. All of Israel's heroes, almost all, meet their spouse at a well. Moses gets kicked out of Egypt. He's on the run. He heads to a well. There's all these thugs beating up on girls. He beats up the thugs. He gets the girl. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. Uh, Isaac sends his servant to meet Rebekah at a well. She's like really strong and independent. He likes. They get married. And then Jacob on the run, after seeing the stairway to heaven, meets Laban and his family at a well through which he meets Rachel. Now fast forward a couple thousand years. Jesus is at a well, not with a hero, with a Samaritan woman. A woman who, by the way, is alone. This is a day before there were localized police. It was incredibly dangerous to travel alone. If you traveled alone, you were most surely asking for trouble. This woman has to go get water alone. Why? Her community is ashamed of her. They don't want to associate with her. So every day she has to risk her life to go get water. Why are they ashamed of her? Look at verse 16. Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right when you said you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have right now is not your husband. Now, you're like, I thought, I thought you said like Jesus isn't religious. This feels like he's like kind of going after this lady. That's in verse 16. It's way deep. A connection, though, has already been made. He's already saying, I'm Israel's true hero. And this gets hinted at when she's like, hey, Jacob built this well. Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? He's like, yes. So he's saying, I'm Israel's true and ultimate hero. I'm a better Jacob. And now I'm meeting someone at a well. Uh, someone walking in shame because of adultery. Now, when the text says she's had five husbands, I understand and I know, and we're going to talk about, there were a ton of double standards back in that day. And I'm just telling you what was happening in the day. Just because it happened in the biblical times does not mean the Bible is supporting it. But it's way easier for men to divorce women for all kinds of crazy things. Things like speaking on the street to a man in public. The thought process was, well, only adulterers would do that. It, it's the appearance of evil. It's shameful. So you get divorced. Things like making a meal your husband didn't like, that could get you divorced. In the days before social safety net, this was awful. I, though, believe what's happening when Jesus points out to this woman, you've been married five times, and she feels like a gotcha moment, like, oh, you know everything I've ever done. I think the text is strongly implying she's been married five times because she's had affairs. Each husband was like, oh, found something 
that just, no, not again. And she's living with someone she's not married to, which, you know, cohabitation is not like an invention of the 1960s. It happened back then as well. But it happened for people who couldn't afford the legal proceedings to get married. So not only is she shamed out of her friend group, her community has turned her back on her, she's broke. She is not somebody that we put on the website. She's not somebody that we put on a t-shirt. She's someone that society has said, hey, if you want to get by, you avoid people like that. People were ashamed of her. You know who's not ashamed of her? God. God's not ashamed of her. He looks at someone who's been wallowing and swimming in shame, and he holds her in a place of honor. We know her as the woman at the well. How would the first century have understood the woman at the well? She's the hero in the story. She's the bride that, you know, someone crossed the desert for. You know, Jacob worked seven years to get to Rachel. Why? Because she was worth it. When people have said, oh, no, you're not, mm-mm. Jesus says, yes, I want you. God loves honoring people who experience shame. Religion cannot do that. Religion says, hide. Grace says, I see you. That explains verse 16. Why does Jesus say, hey, you've been married five times. He's not trying to shame her. I mean, newsflash, she's already, she's already gets it. He's saying, I choose you and I know you. See, we're so used to, if people really knew me, they'd reject me. If my spouse knew what I did in 98, if my boss knew that I padded my resume, they would get rid of me. If God knew who I really was, and John steps in and says, he would move toward you. John 4, verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Religion says, I so obeyed that God accepted me. Jesus says, God so loved that he had to go to Samaria. We are not a religious institution in that we preach the message, you obey and God will accept you. We actually preach against that message, and we have since our inception. We are not about religion around here. And if Christianity is going to be helpful, we have to figure out a way to strongly differentiate from religion. One of the things I just like kind of hate doing when I go out in public is telling people I'm a pastor. And it's not because I'm like ashamed of the gospel or anything like that. There's a wall that goes up when it happens. You, wildly secular people. We're buying a crib on Craigslist. We're talking to people. They're like, really cool. We're having a great time. We watch the same, same TV shows. We're connecting. And like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor. Boof. <laughs> I don't know how to act. Can you see us? Do you think you can see us? <laughs> Why is that? Even though they're totally secular, it's in the air, and we believe if we obey, God accepts us. I don't know what to do. This guy representing God, oh, it's in the air we breathe. Your neighbors believe it. Worse, we believe it. 
We fear. We want control. And religion promises, hey, the universe is cause and effect. If you do good, God blesses. So just trust religion. Hey, the world's a scary place. Just label people scary and move away from them. Jesus doesn't label the Samaritans scary and move away. He makes them the hero of the story and he moves toward. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Grace says, you're accepted. Therefore we obey. Because you see, I think there's a fear a lot of us have. It's like, man, if we become really gracious people, aren't we just going to like, what about standards? Like, are we just going to say like, nothing matters? Look at this. This is wild. A lady feels awkward in verse 19. She's like trying to divert away from really being seen. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's diverting away, giving back to religion. Well, you know what's fascinating? Jesus follows her. Woman, which again is a term of endearment. A time is coming where you'll neither worship your father on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. What's he doing? He's attuned to her. See, look, this is what's fascinating what happens here. This woman comes to the well seeking what? Very good. Water. What does Jesus offer her in verse 13 at least? Water. He's meeting people where they are. So he's like, hey, you looking for water? I've got water. Hey, you have this odd religious question? I'll go there with you. I think that sets a posture for us moving forward with our secular neighbors. What do our secular neighbors look for? Flourishing. Presence. Grace. Love. Prosperity. And we can say, hey, all those things, those are good things. But they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Man, you love human flourishing? We love human flourishing. Man, you love justice? We love justice. And the end arc of that story, all justice is fulfilled in Jesus. Human flourishing, we find our flourishing in Jesus. We find presence in his presence. We've, and we don't just do that as like a lazy, like, what do you want? Oh, I'll get it to you. But we enter into people's stories. We care about what they care about. That's called attuning. That's what grace does. So when Jesus says, I see you, I'll still go where you're going. He's doing it in a way that's attuned to her and in a way that still challenges her. It's amazing. He still, I mean, he challenges her religious question, but then he says this, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they, uh, those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What's he saying? Look, yeah, okay, in the whole conversation of like, do, should we worship on Mount Gerizim or Mount Ebal? Or Jerusalem, you should worship in Jerusalem. But that doesn't matter because there's a coming a time where you have to worship in spirit and in truth. That location isn't going to matter. And guess what? That time is now. He challenges her. Grace can challenge us in a way that religion can't. See, religion says, if I obey, then I'm blessed. Well, guess what? I obeyed. You can't ask anything more from me. I did it. Oh, what, you want more? Jeez, you're really demanding, God. I already did what you asked. I obeyed. We're done here. I, you can't ask any more of me. But grace is a little more terrifying. When God comes in and is gracious, it's like, oh, I didn't do anything. This isn't like a bartering system. You just love me. I joke about this a lot. 
I don't like living in the Midwest, and it's not because of people. It's just like, so hot. So hot. And like, and then it's so cold. It's so hot, then it's so cold. And it's like, there's, and there's ticks. Isn't it? And I don't like yard work. And yesterday, I'm going to do yard work. It's going to be great. And I'm like, I think this is poison ivy. I don't know. It's just a terrifying place. Why do I live here? Because I fell in love with a girl. And she's from here. And now I love it here. I see Columbia, Missouri through the lenses of Amy Trey. And I love it. It brings me so much joy. Now, if we had a relationship that was transactional, where it's like, you do this for me, I do that for you, there's no transaction where this happens. But with love, I'm like, Midwest, yes, let's do it. I love this. Religion is exhausting. Some of you have been on the treadmill of performance for years. Just, God, if I do enough, I'll finally feel better. I'll finally feel your presence. I'll finally feel peace. If I stop doing these things I love, if I stop that, I'll finally get you. And it's exhausting. And grace says, hey, I see you where you are. And you're accepted. Not only are you accepted, you're held in a place of honor. You're you're my child. You're loved. You're cared for. I'm saying I'll meet your needs. That's rocket fuel for your spiritual life. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got to keep doing this for God in order to keep in his good graces. It's like I can't get out of his good graces. I'm accepted and loved and cared for. He's coming after me. He's relentless. He had to go through Samaria. Literally, folks, we, we are in the West, okay? From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, that's us. Jesus, when he had to go through Samaria, he's coming for you. How he treats this woman is how he treats you. He's saying, hey, Religion has shamed you. It's caused you hiding. It's isolated you. I'm coming for you. Remember, she starts this story alone. Then what happens? Look with me in verse 39. She goes back into town, and many of the Samaritans believed in him because of this woman's testimony. She's isolated. She's alone. Then she's a preacher. You can't make this up. She's isolated. She's by herself. No one cares about her. And then she heads into town and she's now speaking with authority. Like, hey, there's a guy who told me everything I ever knew. And people are like, yeah, sign us up. We'll take it. You see that? Religion can't ever produce that. It's like, I did what I need. I served my time. I want to get out. So many of us are leaving the faith because we did our time and we just want to get out. Our bodies might be in the room, but it's like, I'm just keeping them happy. That's religion. And you're exhausted with it? Me too. Religion can't produce people who've been shamed by a community and then run into that community and say, hey, I've got good news for you. Why is she loving people like that? Perhaps it's because she experienced a love that wasn't intellectual. It changed her identity. I am loved. I am cared for. I'm not just this other. I matter. Worthy of love. That's the story of the woman at the well. And it's cranking up the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. Because what do they say about him? Verse 42. We know this man is the savior of the world. 
See, religion loves having an other. And now Jesus is saying, hey, all are welcome. All are welcome. Whoever thirsts, come. This is how you'll get treated. You can bank on a Jesus who treats you like this. See, I'm, I'm not convinced that people are leaving Christianity. I mean, if you didn't know that, it's very wide. Just Google, like, Christian stats. Every denomination is like, like, seminaries are shutting down. Religious, is like, religious organizations in America are just, it's not, a, it's not a good time to, like, be a pastor right now. Job security kind of thing. I'm not convinced people are leaving the faith because they struggle with, like, our beliefs about the supernatural or because they think our morals are too strict. I think people are leaving the faith because they look at us and like, they don't buy it. This is a phony baloney. I think people are rejecting religion. And Jesus says that. Oh, look at verse 35. It's so good. Don't you know, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. Here's what it says. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Our neighbors crave connection. Our neighbors want to know somebody's looking out for them. John chapter 4 says, neighbor, friend, come in. There's hope. You're not alone. Shame may isolate you, but Jesus is moving toward. I don't care. Look, AI, I have this much concerns about AI. I had a lot of conversations with people who were like, oh, I'm so terrified about AI. Here's the thing about AI. Respect for people will always beat out technology. Herb Schultz, he's the founder of the Ritz-Carlton. He's a strong person of faith. He told a story. He was at a talk where they are talking about, oh, the, the hotel business is changing because of tech. Now you can check into your hotel in the car, and then you can get your key from your phone, and then, boop, you don't have to see a person. And, Ritz, and Hortz just gets up and says, everything you just heard is total baloney. For 3,000 years, people have had one need and one need alone, to be respected. So when someone comes into the hotel and you say, we're so glad you're here, come on in. And they say, oh man, have you heard any restaurants? There's a great restaurant down the street, it's a great Thai place. Don't get this, get that. Oh hey, can we take your bags, anything else? People crave that kind of connection. There's a woman wallowing and walking in shame and there's a religious leader who's wildly popular and he, and he seems to be preaching God's word and he says, you're wanted. That's a game changer. I don't care what's gonna happen with tech. If we, if we treat people the way Jesus treated people in John chapter 4, there's always going to be people who are craving and hungry to connect. And the word we use for that is hospitality. Grace creates hospitality. Religion can't ever do that. I got to fit in. What do we do? How do we do this? Uh, do you remember these people? I think it was like 13 years ago, uh, Westboro Baptist Church. They were in like the national narrative everywhere. They, uh, John Stewart said about them, they shouldn't be called a church any more than church's chicken should be called a church. But Westboro Baptist Church, if you're not familiar, I think it was Topeka, Kansas. Topeka, Kansas? Kansas folks? Yeah, Topeka, Kansas. There's a group of, it's, a, it's like a family. There's maybe like 80 people all in all. And they were very religious. And they would show up to uh, funerals of dead soldiers. They would show up to basically other churches, anything. And they would protest. And they had signs that said, like, you know, thank God for dead soldiers. You're going to hell. God is America's, I think that word says enemy. And they were just really 
upsetting, I guess, to say the least. Uh, on CNN once, Fred Phelps, the founder of this organization, they asked him, like, are you just doing this for attention? And he said, yes. We want to get people's attention because they're, they're bad. I said, oh, at least you're honest. Megan Phelps Roper, you hear the middle name, Phelps? The hyphenated name, Phelps? Left the church. She's uh, Fred's granddaughter, and her story of leaving is totally wild. I heard about her on uh, the podcast Armchair Expert, and uh, she is not a person of faith. She's an atheist, but her story of how she left the church is wild. So she would go to these protests from childhood. Can you imagine, like, being a kid and, like, where are we going today, Mom? Like, get in the car, kids. We're headed to a protest of a, a dead soldier. It's just like, ooh, like, this is just a weird, ugh. So she, like, this was the world she knew. She liked it. She was in. She was a part of it. She joined Twitter, which she said was refreshing. Twitter is like the cesspool of humanity. Like, I, I created an account a couple weeks ago and deleted it that afternoon. I was like, oh. She, cre she goes on Twitter and she starts engaging with people. And she said it felt a lot like the picket line. Like, she would yell. They would yell back. She's like, I know this world. This is great. Psh, 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 psh. Well, she meets a guy. I'm going to get rid of this picture. I can see some faces. She meets a guy on Twitter. He's, a, he's a, a law student. His name is David, and he's Jewish. And David starts engaging with her and starts asking her questions, questions she had never thought of on her own. So Megan's mother, before she had Megan many years ago, had a child outside of wedlock, which is a no-no at Westboro Baptist. That's what they're yelling at people for. And so David is like, hey, can you help me understand? You're railing against people, but what about your mom? Like, don't you see that that feels like hypocritical? And Megan had never thought about that before. And she said, well, you know, it's, it's, my mom repented. And so it's good that, you know, because they want people to die. They're, they're like saying people who, you know, don't follow a, like a Levitical law code should die. And, you know, it's good that my mom didn't die because she was able to repent. And David's like, well, wouldn't you want that for other people? And she's like, well, I never thought about that. And slowly, her ball of yarn starts unraveling. But it wasn't the arguments that won her over. Rachel says what really started to win her over was that her community was starting to shift. The Phelps were her people, but now her family on Twitter is becoming her people. And so she's starting to see pictures of kids growing older. And she's starting to feel an attachment and a connection with this community. So much so that when she was coming to the city where David was, she, messaged, she direct messaged him and said, hey, I'm going to be in your city. He said, great, I'm going to bring you some Hebrew snacks. And she said, uh, Midwest guilt kicked in. And she's like, uh, I got to bring him my favorite peppermint bark. And so this is, I couldn't find the picture, but this is a literal thing she talks about. She's holding a God hates Jews sign with her Jewish friend, and they're exchanging snacks. And it was at that point where she's like, something doesn't really add up. And she started to just slowly drift away from one community. And she said, if you want to change your beliefs, change your relationships. And she started being loved by one community, and she's now left Westboro Baptist, and actually talks about like groupthink and cults and how dangerous that is. All because someone moved toward her. Now, 
We are not a place where we say, let's scare people into behaving religiously and that will push back the tide of secularism. No, 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 no. We strongly believe people move toward where they're loved. And in John chapter 4, Jesus moves into a rough neighborhood, finds a rough person and says, you'll work. I don't know what your excuse is for why you think it's still okay to hang out at the fringes. Oh, God, God wouldn't. If people knew my story, if people really saw when we have this woman and Jesus is saying over and over, I know and I'm still inviting. I know. I see the affair. I see the disappointment. I see. And I want you. That's grace. We're going to be a place where we're pushing back against religion. If Christianity is going to be any hope moving forward, we have to clearly differentiate. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Jesus says, you're accepted. And then we can talk obedience. Jesus, God, I know, I know that religion and all of its offerings promise security. God, I pray for those in here who are just tired, though, tired of those broken promises. Father, I pray that they would find you moving toward them. God, we know that's the case. So, God, I pray that if anybody in here is just feeling your tug, that you give them the courage to just say yes to you today. God, I pray that we would be a place that's hospitable because we've experienced the hospitality, not once, but again and again. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.